Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings at the U.S. Naval Institute. Today is Friday, January 6, 2023, our first episode of the new year. Good to have you on board, everybody. Today's show will be the highlights of the January proceedings. But first, this episode is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Dental Coverage. I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services. My in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year, and plans start as low as $20 a month. Learn more at bcbsfepdental.com. All right, welcome back. My guest today is the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings, Bill Bray, Captain, U.S. Navy, retired, and my cohort, my, my partner in crime. Bill, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Bill. Uh, it's great to be here, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. So the January issue is out. It is awesome. It's got a great cover image, a uh, shot of an SM2 coming out of a VLS cell on a, on a U.S. Navy DDG. Uh, and we're, it's also the first issue of 2023, which is our 150th anniversary year at the U.S. Naval Institute. So on 9 October of this year, we will be officially, that is our birthday, uh, but we're kicking off a, a celebration all year long in proceedings uh, of our sesquicentennial. So Bill, just uh, describe what we're doing in terms of extra pages in proceedings and, and how, we're, uh, how we're marking the landmark. Yeah, sure. So um, each issue, starting with this one, as you mentioned, has eight, eight extra pages at our expense um, that will uh, take some kind of a, a look back. Um, a little at, heftier magazine. A little heftier. Yeah, 104 um, pages this month. It looks back uh, really the whole, the whole 150 years or so on a specific topic. So for uh, that, the, that is a topic that has has abided uh, most of the Institute's history. So surface warfare weapons is the first topic and our um, uh, eminence grise, uh, uh, so to speak, at the Naval Institute, Dennis Clift is uh, taking on this uh, task to go back in, into the stack, so to speak, and look at uh, many, many articles. You can only include a little bit um, because it's uh, there's so much volume, um, but to look back at, at the different decades and uh, some key articles on uh, Navy weapons. And, and uh, so I think, you know, for me, of course, I'm biased, but I, I'm a, a little bit of a geek on this. I think it's fascinating and it really highlights the depth um, of uh, content and analysis that exists in the pages of proceedings and at the Naval Institute generally, uh, really unparalleled. Uh, nobody else has that. Yeah, I agree. Dennis, uh, as you mentioned, our eminence grise, or I, I described him in my editor's page as the international man of mystery. But uh, for those who don't know, Dennis is 85 years old, maybe 86 years old now. He comes to work every day. He uh, was the editor-in-chief of proceedings uh, back in the early 1960s, about the time I was born. And then he had a long and uh, very distinguished career in public service uh, in the national security realm, including he was the national security advisor to uh, Vice President Walter Mondale. He served on a number of different uh, iterations of the National Security Council staff. He worked directly for Henry Kissinger for uh, several years. He made trips to uh, Beijing, 
to Moscow, to Russia, was part of uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, international agreements and uh, Cold War era, you know, SALT and START agreements. And he's just an amazing human being. Uh, and he, he finished his career in public service as the, was it the dean of the National Intelligence College? Do I have that right? Or the National Defense Intelligence College? It's had several names. It's current, currently called the National Intelligence University. Right, right. So Dean, or, or uh, Dennis is the so dean or president, uh, sorry, president emeritus. But de uh, Dennis is just a, an amazing, amazing human being. So he's going back through the stacks, if you will, and pulling out, as you said, the highlights on a particular topic each month uh, that have been covered in proceedings over, you know, decades, uh, you know, or in some cases in this one, because it's naval weapons going back to, you know, cannons and turreted guns and all that kind of stuff back from the, uh, the, the 1880s and proceedings and on. Great stuff. Um, I want to talk about the American Sea Power Project, which continues. And uh, this month, uh, the, uh, the, the title of the article is Bigger Fleets Win. And it's by Sam Tangretti, who's a retired Navy captain, who's been writing for proceedings, I think, for four decades. And Sam is a, a professor at the Naval War College. He's the Lidos Chair of Future Navy Warfare Studies uh, at the Naval War College. He's uh, a PhD and just an incredible human being. Uh, and, and Sam has gone back. I think it's, he's looked at 28 wars or major conflicts that have had that have been defined by major naval conflict going back, you know, like a, a thousand years in history. And uh, he's debunked the myth that you know, quality has a quantity all of its own. Uh, and he basically says, no, you know, if you look back at, I, I think there's these 28 wars in 25 out of 28, the side, the size with the bigger fleet has predominated. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, the, 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 the uh, um, exceptions to the rule don't give you any confidence uh, that, that, you know, the U.S. Navy is going to be able to dominate in the Western Pacific uh, against a bigger Chinese fleet, uh, because those exceptions to the rule were literally hundreds of years ago. So it, it's a terrific piece. I just wanted to highlight a couple of things that he brought out. Of course, you have to talk about Wayne Hughes if you're if you're a serious navalist. But Sam points out that um, you know uh, in his research conclusions, the advantages of mass or numbers at, in naval warfare. You know, first is the ability to absorb the first salvo is really important, especially on the American side. We always we always talk about that. We we assume in almost every case of warfare that we're going to we're going to take the first shot. We're, we're not I mean, we're not going to fire the first shot. We're going to we're going to be on the receiving end of the first shot. So absorbing that first salvo, the ability to mass fires from individual units, the ability to saturate the opponent's defenses. Uh, is is decisively dependent on mass. The ability to operate simultaneously in multiple theaters is incredibly important. The ability to maintain reserve forces during inevitable attrition, hugely important. And then also presenting too many targets for limited inventories of costly precision weapons. And so all of those things, uh, Sam, you know, fleshes out in this article. Uh, and, you know, he quotes uh, uh, Wayne Hughes. He, uh, he just does a, a great job. Um, and he also presents, I think it's really important towards the end, the point about risk and about the, uh, if you're going to build and depend on a smaller Navy, uh, 
That is a risk calculation, whether we're consciously taking that risk or unconsciously taking that risk by having a smaller Navy, the nation and our political leaders are assuming a greater degree of risk. So I, I uh, commend this article to anybody. The ongoing American Sea Power Project is just bringing us terrific content. And, uh, you know, Sam Tangredi has kind of hit it out of the park this month. So any, any thoughts from you on Sam's piece? No, this is a great. It's a great piece. I highlighted in in one of my posts uh, with a new um, issue. Uh, one thing I thought about reading it was, so the the size of fleets for opposing forces are it's not a static. You know, in other words, you don't necessarily start with the same size of fleet. So the U.S. most recent, obviously uh, World War II, uh, where we had massive fleet on fleet engagements. The, the U.S. grew its fleet larger than the Imperial Japanese Navy. Didn't start with it uh, larger. Um, I mean, it was on its way by the, you know, the, the, the Navy Act in the late 1930s, 1940, uh, to grow the fleet as the uh, war clouds loomed. Um, but it, it, so what I think when you analyze it, you got to think about, okay, you know, a larger fleet ultimately wins. Maybe you don't start with a larger fleet, but you got to be able to build a larger fleet. You have to have the capacity, the industrial capacity, to outbuild the opponent eventually. Yeah, that's a that's a critical point, and I know that's been brought out in a couple of the previous uh, articles. The American Sea Power Project is, you know, uh, in, including I, I think it's in this issue by um, uh, Commander Matt Wright, a different article about how uh, Nimitz's calculus when he was uh, getting ready for the Battle of Midway was the amount of risk that Nimitz was able, able and willing to take at Midway was directly impacted by his knowledge of what was coming in the future in terms of aircraft carriers that would be ready for combat in late 1942 and 43 and 44. He knew that there was a massive buildup coming. So if he lost at Midway, it wasn't going to be the end of the war. That was a That's a really critical point about um, about risk and about how much you're willing to take is the industrial capacity and how fast it's going to bring new capability uh, to bear for you. Yeah, great point. Uh, what was another one of the articles that you wanted to highlight this month? Um, I, uh, we talked about Dennis's, so we'll move to um, uh, the article on the uh, uh, titled Assessing the Expeditionary Sea Base. And this has got three authors, uh, Captains uh, Daryl Cardone, um, Commander Ben Coyle and Lieutenant Commander Daniel Murphy. They were uh, the command element on the blue crew of uh, ESB, um, Lewis B. Puller. Now, what is an ESB, right? So for the first great thing about this article is you get a good deep dive into what, what these ships are. There's only three of them um, and, and what they're doing. Um, and they have two kind of main missions. One, one is as an afloat uh, staging base, mostly for aircraft. Um, they operate in CENTCOM, and which the geography that CENTCOM deals with the, in the littorals and everything make it really an ideal place for these for these ships to operate. It also has an airborne mine countermeasure mission. So the um, the article describes what what it is, what they do. Um, many people, even in the theater, um, the authors said, don't know what they do, and they had to you know, bring them out onto the ship and give them tours. Um, but then they, they you know. It's not just a what what we did on our summer vacation article, right? It's a this is how to make this platform better. 
And um, this is what the Navy should do, that the, the resource sponsors should do to make these platforms even more multi-mission, more capable, um, everything from you know, technical uh, improvements to uh, adjusting the crew uh, type. It's a hybrid crew, uh, meaning that it's got a, a Navy commander, a commanding officer, and a, and a, and a military uh, crew that has certain responsibilities and has a civilian crew that has certain responsibilities. I had a little experience myself with this in my career because the command uh, ship of Sixth Fleet Command Ship in USS Mount Whitney is a hybrid crew. And I saw that up close when I was embarked uh, when I was uh, doing my tour at Sixth Fleet. So it, it has, has some advantages, uh, I think, um, of hybrid crews, and it has some, some challenges. Um, so it's really a, a very interesting uh, piece. And of course, C Captain Cardone has moved on, and he's now the commanding officer of the Ronald Reagan. Right, so he went on to C CVN command, which uh, portends well for him. I love one of the quotes in this article, which is, your ship looks like a parking garage. And I don't know, Heather, if you can uh, flip to another uh, image or two from that, uh, that spread. But um, uh, the, the authors start off by saying, the Navy's expeditionary sea-based ships do have a unique look, uh, almost as if the Navy purchased an Alaskan oil tanker, cut out the middle section, built a parking garage, and then stuck a 50,000 square foot flight deck on top Essentially, this is what the Navy did, is what they say. So it is a unique, interesting, weird sort of uh, looking ship. And I always love proceedings articles like this one because, uh, you know, no platform, no aircraft, no system is ever perfect when, when it's first procured. And then the, the, the cool thing about an article such as this is that it points out the neat stuff that Navy people do to experiment with it, right? It's like, okay, let's take it out to sea. Let's ring it out. Let's figure out what works well. Let's experiment with different types of operations and then learn from that. And then we can, you know, tell the designers, hey, we would like to have A, B and C on the next one. Um, and but also here's how we're going to uh, develop further develop, you know, the operational concept for these ships. So it's a it's a great piece. And it, it's it definitely in that sort of archetype of proceedings articles of how do we use this thing that Congress bought for us? Right. And it's it's a pretty good one. Um, the next one I want to highlight is an article by uh, the vice chair of our ed board, uh, Captain Tom Clarity, uh, who is now a, so Tom commanded a growler squadron. He was operations officer on Ronald Reagan out in the FDNF, and he's now a uh, uh, professor up at the Naval War College, and he's on our, uh, uh, on our editorial board. He's the vice chair of our editorial board. One of the points that he brought out probably a year ago in a conversation with the Ed Board is that, you know, the Navy hasn't so far really gone deeper than about PowerPoint and kind of at the operational to strategic level of what distributed maritime operation is. And so DMO is this concept, but what at the, at the 0506 command level, what is that going to look like? And so Tom dug in and um, he's come up with a you know, some uh, ideas about what DMO should look like, how it could work. Uh, there's some great figures. There's a visual model for DMO and a tactical engagement. But he, 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 um, he goes to an example from nature and he watched as, you know, flocks of starlings, which are, you know, kind of like little bird finches, uh, how they operate, how they, you know, flock together. Um, and it, the, the word... So there's a word for it. Uh, I've never heard this word, a murmuring of starlings. 
Yeah, and yeah. it's really, you know, it's really interesting. And he basically says, if you're going if the fleet's going to operate in a distributed maritime operations environment, it's going to take a couple of things. It's going to take mission command. It's going to take a lot of trust. And it, and then the fleet's going to have to operate very fluidly to find, you know, that'll be a scouting function, function, but to find the adversary, to amass weapons and fires on the adversary, and then to sort of readjust and, and move out again. And so these uh, on page 27, if you've got the print issue, um, there's a visual model for that DMO in a tactical engagement that sort of builds off what, you know, what a murmuring of starlings looks like. Uh, but for me, this is a great read. It was a really interesting uh, to, to put it together and also to, to try to visualize how would ships operate or look like, you know, in, in a murmuring. So uh, I like that one. I commend it to you. It's also got a nice sidebar. Heather, if you'd throw that back up, you know, keep that uh, up there. Um, but he's also got, because he mentions Admiral King's war instructions. And so we put a sidebar in of uh, King's war instructions that were published in 1944. Uh, after nearly three years of bitter fighting during World War II, it covered topics ranging from darkening individual ships to daytime engagements against enemy forces. But the most important thing that King was getting after was the importance of what we now refer to as mission command is, you know, individual commanding officers, individual ships being able to uh, react to it up uh, to, to conditions at sea, react to what the adversary is doing and to execute commander's intent uh, as they understand it without having to have detailed minute by minute instructions on, on how to take the fight to the, uh, to the adversary. So I don't know any, any thoughts on, on that one for you, Bill? Yeah, no, I thought the same things you did. Um, you know, another great thing about proceedings and why it's here is, is to do this, to look at the concepts that the Navy is, um, you know, that are official, become sort of official Navy concepts and then saying, okay, how is this actually going to work? And then do, do the deep, you know, the, the work and the deep dive and, and thinking about it and, and officers like Tom, uh, you know, are just great at doing that. And, uh, and this is, this is really the, the exactly the right forum to do it in. Yeah, exactly. What was another one you wanted to highlight? So I'd like to highlight um, the, our first professional note in this issue. So for our uh, listeners, there are some things that have, proceedings has been around since the 1870s, of course, and um, some things have changed. Some things have not changed. One of the things that hasn't changed is the professional notes. You can open a volume of proceedings from 1877, uh, for example, and see the professional notes in there. Um, so they're much longer. They have a lot of science in some of them, and uh, <laughs> but they are professional notes. So this one is about uh, damage control. And um, as a former SWO myself, um, early in my career, uh, you know anybody who who has served on a ship um, and done damage control drills um, can appreciate this. So the first thing the CO has to do is make sure that the crew can do, you know, the basics, can man the repair lockers, operate the equipment, um, do, you know, sort of basic uh, damage control, co uh, command and control, uh, communications, uh, you know, keeping people. And that's all important. Um, you've got to be able to do that. And with a crew that, you know, generally turns over a lot between deployments, you kind of start from, you know, scratch again after uh, when you're in the basic phase. And uh, Lieutenant Commander Zach Zero, the, um, the author of this, 
says that, you know, that's fine, but that's not really what happens when a ship gets hit, right? It's very much more complicated and um, the crew needs to be able to uh, uh, do damage control in a very um, confusing and harrowing environment. Um, and he gives several examples, such as the Stark incident in 1987. Um, and he's advocating in this professional note that you, we've got to do more complicated, more um, uh, kind of visceral damage control uh, training at sea to prepare these crews for what it, you know, actually would be like, I mean, as much as you can, um, and, you know, losing people, parts of the, the repair locker won't even show up because they'll be, you know, injured or dead, you know, and these are kind of things and in injecting this sort of, uh, realism, this combat realism into it is, is what needs to happen. And it's not happening. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, uh, the, the chief petty officer who wrote, uh, uh, every sailor, a damage controlman a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name now, but we had him on the uh, podcast. Um, Chris Minor. Yeah. Uh, sorry. Uh, now Chief Petty Officer uh, Chris Minor. Um, but his his piece on damage control. And we've had quite a bit on damage control over the last couple of years, including uh, Joel Holwitz piece on you know fighting fires on, on uh, submarines. Uh, so it's a great point. One of the he, he draws on as you point out, um, examples from World War II, uh, examples that you said, the Stark, um, the, also the USS Cole bombing, you know, in Aden in, uh, in, in the year 2000. Um, but some of the, you know, the stark realities, like when you're fighting a fire, when you're up close in a, in a very hot compartment fire, the, the amount of time that sailors can endure on that fire might be measured in in seconds or, you know, small numbers of minutes, right? And so having to swap out the people on the fighting a fire, it's not gonna be, you know, the same three sailors uh, on leading the hose team, you know, until the fire is out, you might have to swap out sailors every couple of minutes because they get too hot, they get exhausted, they're sweating, they're in their gear and they're they're just exhausted. Anyway, really, really good, very realistic piece by, uh, by Zach Zero, I like that one. Um, Wanted to point out one uh, article that uh, you know, Mike. We've had Mike Dom has written a lot about the Chinese Navy, Commander Mike Dom. Uh, this month, he's got one of our leading. It is the leading feature article in the issue. It's titled "Lessons from the Changing Geometry of PLA Navy Carrier Ops." So the um, the first Chinese aircraft carrier is has been operational for a few years, and as uh, Mike points out, they've been. Uh, taking a pretty cautious, um, you know, sort of conservative approach to building that capability and then exercising it at sea. But in 2021 and, uh, uh, and 2022, the Liaoning uh, operated in the Miyako Strait. It operated out in the Philippine Sea and in the East China Sea. It operated uh, east of Taiwan. It operated within the Japan ADIS and the Taiwan ADIS. And uh, Mike is a, an expert on, on China. He, uh, he spent much of his career in the Navy analyzing uh, the Chinese Navy. And now he's worked for Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. And now he's worked, he works for MITRE. And he continues to be uh, a senior analyst on, on China. He also served as a naval attache in China. And he spent a lot of time in, in his U.S. Navy career uh, operating on U.S. aircraft carriers. So he knows a bit about carrier operations uh, both watching the Chinese and also from his experience 
as a as an AI, an art, uh, uh, an air wing or air uh, squadron intelligence officer in the Navy. But one of the things he brings up is blue water ops. So the U.S. Navy, we always talk about blue water ops and carrier strike groups and air wings getting their blue water ops certification. It comes kind of late in getting the uh, CSG ready ready to deploy. It's one of the last things. It always happens during COM2X, which is the most advanced training uh, uh, scenario out at sea. And so he, he brings up that where the Liaoning operated for some of this uh, flight operations actually uh, connotes the, the possibility that they did bl true blue water ops, which is you either land 100% of your aircraft back on the carrier uh, or somebody's going in the drink, right? Because you're so far from a land base, you're so far from um, a, a place where, you know, back ashore where you can uh, land this, land your aircraft. So he brings that up um, and he kind of makes the, uh, the conclusion that yes, given the distances, uh, it would have been not impossible for them to divert back to uh, the mainland China, but they were operating, you know, at a range of over a thousand miles from, from uh, a divert field. And the other thing he brings up is that, you know, where, that Liaoning operated and some of the other operations that they conducted during these two deployments, uh, it, it tested both Japan's air force uh, and, and reactive capability in their ADIS. And it also tested what Taiwan could do. And that while Liaoning operated east of Taiwan, the Chinese also did a lot of uh, air, air force or air uh, operations to the west of Taiwan. So they were operating in the Taiwan Strait while Liaoning was out east of Taiwan. And so it tested, the Chinese were able to run a test, you know, against watching the, the, how the Chinese, how the Taiwanese would react to threat axes on both sides uh, and the Japanese as well. So that couple of really interesting things that are brought out in this, you know, great detailed level. I don't think you'd, you could find a more detailed level analysis you know, perhaps even at the classified level, but, you know, Mike is taking this into the unclassified realm and providing something that I think most of us would, would only see in the classified realm. Uh, he just does a terrific job of it. Absolutely. I, I mean, Mike and, Mike and I, just full disclosure, served together on the Kennedy back in the early 2000s. Um, he was the air wing um, AI and I was the uh, N2 with strike, uh, carrier strike group six. And so I got to know him then. I knew how, um, what a great mind he has, you know, an analytical mind. And um, let's look, let's talk about that for a second. Let's look back now in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, there were very few voices such as our friend, you know, Captain Jim Fennell and a few others that said, hey, China's, they're in it to win it. They, they want to build a, a global Navy. That was a, that was a, a small dissenting viewpoint. The, the conventional yeah. view was China just wants a regional Navy and they're, they're building this aircraft carrier as kind of a show pony, you know, and it won't be really, you know, they're not really interested in, in doing global, you know, carrier ops and anything like that, blah, blah, blah. And the Navy, by the way, is, is building up this threats because, you know, they, they need to justify, you know, building ships and, and there was some cynicism involved from other uh, commentators, spectators uh, that were looking at the Navy. Okay, we're way past that, right? So, you know, now we're in the, you know, 2020s. Uh, th this is, um, 
the third aircraft carrier is going to be, you know, launched or it's launched, but it's, it's going to be in commission soon. It's, it's much better. Uh, the Chinese are, as Mike points out, they're, they're very careful, very diligent. Um, they study us um, and they're doing this. And I think uh, often, you know, as I teach my class at the Naval Academy, you know, that when I look at these midshipmen, what kind of Chinese Navy are they going to be looking at when they're going into their command tours in you know, 20 years or so. Uh, it's really daunting. Um, but, the China, you know, you can imagine the Chinese doing a carrier deployment to the west, Eastern Pacific. And, yeah, uh, you know, or, or and, to the Mediterranean in, in a year right. or two. Right? I, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, it, it was not too long ago, 10 years ago or so, that we were uh, sort of surprised to see the Chinese join the, the counter piracy task force in the Middle East off the, you know, the coast of Somalia. And everyone thought before they did that, that that would really be a challenge to them. And then they did it and then they've sustained it and they've been part of it since then. We've seen Chinese, uh, you know, small detachments, two, three ships, including an oiler, go all the way into the Mediterranean, all the way up into the Baltic Sea. Um, you know, Jim Fennell was on the show back, I think, in August, and he talked about visiting some of those Chinese ships in Kiel in Germany, right, after after deploying, you know, essentially halfway around the world. Um, and as you point out, Liaoning was the hull that they bought from the, the Ukraine, right, which was originally built or started construction as a Soviet Navy carrier. Uh, and then they, they bought it, they brought it over. Uh, they converted it. They finished it out. You know, now that it's an operational ship, they built another one entirely indigenously based on Liaoning. And now they've built a third carrier, which is a new design of carrier called the Fujian. And the Fujian has got electromagnetic catapults. Yep. And as um, Mike points out in this, the, the type 003 Fujian carrier, one of the advantages it's going to have because it, instead of just being a ski jump, aircraft take off under their own power, the electromagnetic catapults are going to allow the Chinese carrier to have an E2D-like aircraft, an airborne early warning and control system aircraft like our E2D. And they've just built this thing called the KJ-600 airborne early warning aircraft. And so that aircraft is now operational. We've seen pictures of it. It looks very much like an E2. Um, but with the electromagnetic catapults, they'll be able to launch that, you know, not just fighters, not just, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, the fighter aircraft, the strike aircraft, but also launch the AWACS capability that can get up to 30,000 feet and give a much, much broader viewpoint of the battle space to the carrier striker. Um, one last thing on this one that I'll point out is that uh, Mike very smartly not just counted the carrier because for the Chinese, for any Navy, it's not just about the carrier. It's about all of the capabilities in the carrier strike group. And he points out that the Renhai type cruiser, the type three uh, Luyang destroyers and a type 52 C Luyang two destroyer, that all the ships that accompanied the Liaoning during its deployments in the, uh, in the Philippine Sea, um, that they had, they possessed a total of 352 vertical launch cells. So this was a carrier strike group that yes, it had a carrier. Yes, it did, you know, uh, uh, 
fixed wing sorties and compared to a you know us nimitz class carrier we're not talking about 100 sorties a day we're really talking about a few dozen sorties a day but that carrier strike group had um had cruisers and had destroyers and had vls capability for both uh anti-war anti-air warfare missile defense uh, and um, anti-ship cruise missiles and and long-range anti uh, long-range uh, strike capability. 352 v- VLS cells a- accompanying the carrier on its deployment. So, you know, impressive capability, as you point out. This is not the Navy that we thought the Chinese would have. You know, when we were looking at it 20, 30 years ago. Uh, this is a rapidly building, advancing and now testing and testing at sea their capabilities, pretty impressive. So, okay, well, that is the February issue, or sorry, the January issue, the surface warfare issue of proceedings. Uh, any any parting shots, Bill? Um, no, it, it's a great issue. Um, I think it's really, really a fantastic issue. One of the, one of the best ones we put out in, in recent memory. Um, and uh, in the Surface Navy Association's uh, uh, annual symposium is next week, uh, which is why we do the Surface Navy issue in, in January to, to coincide with that. So hopefully uh, some of these articles will get some discussion there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so Kelly Welsh, our director of outreach and marketing, and I will be at SNA. So if you're at the Surface Navy Association symposium in Crystal City, 10, 11, 12, uh, January, so that's just next week. I'll be there on the 10th. I can't be there on the 11th because of our uh, our monthly editorial board meeting, but we'll be recording some episodes of the Proceedings Podcast at SNA. Not live, they'll be recorded and then we'll, we'll broadcast them afterwards. But if you're at SNA, please stop by, visit the booth, um, you know, watch a recording of the, uh, of the podcast. If you uh, are not a member, uh, if you become a member at SNA, We'll give you a, a great T-shirt. We've got new proceedings T-shirts with a picture of a DVG on the front. So the first uh, until we run out of T-shirts, people who stop by and sign up for uh, membership of the Naval Institute uh, will get a free T-shirt. And we'll also have uh, Jeff Cares, who's the author of a Naval Institute press book, signing copies of his book on the 11th. Um, so next Wednesday at, at our booth at, uh, at SNA. So. Uh, looking forward to seeing people at SNA and uh, hearing the presentations and, and doing some episodes of the podcast. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast, this time brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield Dental Coverage. I can't help myself from smiling right now. That's because I have Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Dental. I pay no deductible for in-network services. My in-network preventive care is fully covered, including three cleanings a year, Plans start as low as $20 a month. Learn more at bcbsfepdental.com. All right, that, that wraps up another episode. If you enjoy the show, like us, subscribe to the channel, tell your friends, become a member at usni.org forward slash join. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. Happy